I want to follow up on some of the themes I've been talking to you guys about in the last few weeks, but not specifically on giving today. You can all take a big sigh of relief. That's done. If you, if you, did, not, if you did not see the scriptural teaching and message and theme and the heart purpose behind it after the last three weeks, it's between you and God. I got nothing left to do with that. But I do want to talk about idols. Because that's the core of what we've been talking about, giving and and being a cheerful giver and all that stuff. It all just comes down to idolatry, which is the major theme in Scripture. It's worship the Lord or worship someone else. That's the clash in Scripture. And like I said, money and giving in the New Testament is God's way of challenging us in the same way fasting is intended to challenge us, which is to identify those things that have leadership in our lives, those things that have primacy in our lives, and then starve them out. Starve them to death, right? So that you learn to find your only substance and your primary provision from the Lord and what he gives. And this is a message throughout Scripture, Right? When you look at Israel, there's a reason why they struggled with idolatry so much. There's a reason why we today as the church and as individual Christians struggle with idolatry so much. Just we think of idolatry as an Old Testament term or an ancient world thing. Like we don't have idols today. Show me the statue we worship. Right? Like we don't we don't actually recognize it as idols. And a big part of that is because of what Jesus did. And he came and he exposed that the natural realm, the material realm, the physical realm was not the point, but that it was about the heart and the mind. And so now instead of looking around on your bookshelves or, you know, your local temples for where the idol is, he says, no, look in your heart and in your mind. That's where the idols are. These other physical manifestations and expressions of idolatry were just that. But the issue is that the idolatry comes from the heart. And because of who we are and and the physical needs we have to survive, it's easy for us to make idols out of the things we physically need to to live, like food and water and oxygen, (laughs) right? And so God institutes this thing called fasting, where you deny your body food for a period of time, and your body starts to scream and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but we need that stuff to survive, And then the Christian says, I know what you think you need, but you're not getting it no matter how loud you scream. I am denying you and I am showing you that my spirit leads this thing, that I do as a spirit. I lead the decisions here and I'm choosing to obey God. And so during this discipline time, I'm going to feast on the word of God and his presence and find my sustenance in that. And we have some examples of Moses going up on a mountain for over 40 days with no food, no water. Jesus going out into the wilderness. And at the end of a 40-day fast where he hadn't eaten anything, the devil says, I know what can get him. He's hungry. Hey, Jesus, you want some bread? Right? Like that was, was, it wasn't a big super spiritual temptation. It was just that. Hey, I know you're physically weak and you're starving. You've literally not eaten a thing for 40 days. I'll bet you'd like some really good fresh bread. And Jesus is confronted with that temptation. You don't think his body was like, yes, I would love that. But he was denying himself. It's like what Paul 
is teaching the church in the New Testament, and he, he's talking about those who live according to their own ways, who don't follow Jesus, and he describes them as those whose belly is their God. Meaning that they are dictated and led by their physical desires and impulses. What they want, their belly says what they want, that in, their, in, that, in the ancient time, belly was the seat of your passions, Right? Literally, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, the literal translation is bowels, right? Like, you want to read it accurately, it says, love the Lord your God with all your bowels. Because they believed where they felt things. You know, like when you feel something internally intensely, right here in your gut. They believed that that was the center of a person, and so therefore, that was what heart meant to them. Love the Lord your God with all of your inner guts, And so Paul describes those who are led by that as people who aren't following Christ. And that's the heart of idolatry. And so today, like I talked about last week, what do we depend on? Money, provision. And so it's easy for that to become what we need, our God, our idol, the thing we actually depend on. And so God, throughout the entire scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, and specifically in the New Testament, Paul hits it hard, addresses giving. And how it functions like fasting. Where if you generously and cheerfully and sacrificially give even more than you can spare, it dictates, it it declares that you are not in charge. My dependency and my provision and my sustenance does not rest on you. It rests on a good and generous God who has challenged me to give. And then for me to, to watch and see if he does not open up the storehouses of heaven and pour out provision and blessing. Like, God is saying, trust me, demonstrate your trust, show your trust. And if you think God doesn't do that, ask Abraham. Of course God does that. God is constantly putting us in situations and opportunities to be tested so that we can see where we're at. And so that we can can say, God, help me course correct, Help, help me get in line with you, help me get rid of these idols, because there's only room for one person to sit on the throne of your heart. And it's hard work making sure that that's Jesus at all times. If you think about it, it's really hard work. Because everything about you is against that. The Bibles teach very clearly that your mind is at enmity against God and the things of God. Your flesh rages against the things of God. Like, this is just the reality of this fallen, sin, cursed world we live in. It's under a curse. If it wasn't, the ground you're standing on wouldn't look like this. It would look like that, only ten times better. You understand? This is the reality. We are, we are wrestling through this thing, and, and it takes hard work to, to discipline your flesh and your mind and say, the Lord sits on the throne, period, and to do these things. This is why Jesus says, when I'm gone, my people will fast Often. What a weird statement for someone who is supposedly declaring that you're good. Fast, 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 because it's denying those things that would vie for your attention, affection, and dependency. And so we have this idolatry. When you look at Israel, Israel rejected God as he really is. When God came and said, this is who I am. They rejected him. 
And he said, no, Moses, you, you go deal with that. But then when he was presented to them as a golden calf, they all rejoiced and accepted him with arms wide open, no hesitation. The golden calf is always easier to accept as your God. Always. Because it's a God made in your own likeness, in your own image, around the things you want and the things you need and the things you desire. And you craft it and it looks like whatever that looks like in your heart. But it comes out and it's very clear. So I want to read in Jeremiah 2. This is, this is the heart of God. And I want to show you a New Testament tie-in of how Jesus is then screaming to the sky and to the heavens for everyone and anyone who will listen to hear what he's saying so that we can then live in actual freedom and true missional power. Before that, I just want to point out, guys, like this is from the, from the beginning to the end. The primary idol has always been ourselves, right? Always. From the garden to today. The primary idol is ourselves and what we want and what we, we need and what we feel like. And then we create gods in our image, gods that aren't even gods, gods that have no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no mouth to speak. They're dead, dumb pieces of wood that can't even walk unless you carry them, right? Like that... That is what it ends up in, non-life-giving, and then people wonder why they're suffering and struggling through all this emptiness and feeling so empty and alone and not feeling fulfilled. It's like you're trying to get water from a dry well. You're trying to get a a dead piece of wood to speak to you life-giving encouragement. So in Jeremiah 2, this is what it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem... That this is what the Lord says. So God is speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah at this time is about, let's be generous and say 15. He's probably younger than that at this point, but let's just say 15 so we can get like a a ballpark picture in our mind as we understand what's happening here. And God calls this young boy, who's not even a man yet, to go and prophesy to the leaders of Israel. He says, go tell them this. I remember the loyalty of your youth. Sorry, so many addendums here. But as I'm reading this, remember, this is is a prophecy from God to his people. And that means for you, the heart of God here has not changed. It is still the same heart cry to you, to the church, to those of us who follow him. Saying, I remember the loyalty of your youth. Your love as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land that wasn't sown yet. Israel, my people, was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of my harvest. All who tried to eat of that were found, found themselves guilty, and disaster came on them. He's talking about enemies that tried to come in and how God defended his people in Israel, and they were all destroyed. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all families of the house of Israel. Here is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? They stopped asking, 
Where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty, but after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law, they no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets began to prophesy by Baal instead of me and following useless idols. Listen to the heart cry just in that first section. Two different times in this one place, he says that his people and his priests, they stopped asking this really key question. Where is the Lord in this? Where is he? It was them saying there was the pursuit of the Lord and where he was and what he was doing had ceased. What caused them to stop that? Well, he says this. They no longer felt they had need of him. They were no longer wandering in the wilderness where there was no food and no water and enemies on every side. They stopped crying out in desperate need of the Lord to provide something they couldn't provide for themselves. And so he answered because he cares and loves them and is faithful. But then they took that provision and they stored it away to make sure they would never need him again. And once they had everything they needed, they began to look for the things they desired. And his accusation to them is this. They stopped saying, where is the Lord? They didn't care anymore. And instead, they began to pursue the things that pleased them, that that brought them what they desired. Prophesying by Baal and all these other false gods that that filled their their human desires and their lustful flesh. It, it, It cried out to it and said, I'll give you this. And they're like, I will worship you then. And it leads and he says, the experts in the law no longer knew me. They knew all about him. They were experts in the law and the teachings, but they no longer knew him. And the rulers rebelled against him and began to prophesy by Baal and other idols. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. And he makes this amazing statement. Listen to this. He says, cross over to Cyprus, a foreign land, and take a look. Send someone to Qadar, another foreign land. And consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. And he's about to describe what this thing is. So see if there's ever been anyone like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? God is saying, like, in the history of the world, nations have never turned in their god for a different one. Even godless nations that worship idols, false gods that aren't gods, they're loyal to them. There's never a need to exchange them. And that's what he's saying. This is God declaring it. 
See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. And he says, be horrified at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly appalled. This is the Lord's declaration to you. And he sums it up with this. For my people, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about idols and and breaking it down and how at the beginning you loved me. You were so appreciative of the salvation I brought to you and the redemption that I brought to you when I rescued you out of darkness and brought you into marvelous light and you were living in that you loved me like the honeymoon stage like you loved me in your youth you were faithful and then you did something eventually that no one no nation had ever done it was unheard of you exchanged me for another God and he says this is what I have against you guys My people have committed two evils. Now, guys, if you've read the prophets, you know they've committed a whole lot more than two. But God is saying, in summary, here are the two primary evils that I'm holding against you. You have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And instead, you dug cisterns for yourselves. Broken cisterns that can't even hold water on top of that. This was God's judgment on them. That you've forsaken me, the actual source of life. The actual source of fulfillment and provision and life and goodness. And then on top of that, You decided to build your own broken containers to try to hold the water you were getting. And guess what? They can't hold my water. And I talked about last week how God shows us his foreshadowing with the manna from heaven. And he declares, do not store it up. You're going to have to trust me every day for your daily bread. And if you do try to store it, it's going to rot in your own tent. And be gonna, it's going to rot and smell awful and worms and stuff will come from it. And guess what a ton of Israelites did anyway? In their fear and need to make sure they were safe and secure, they stored up more and most of it and put it in giant cisterns. And those things rotted and putrefied and worms and maggots were coming out of it. And God said, I told you. And even though they did that, guess what was still on the ground the next morning for them? Provision. The manna from heaven. Because God provides like he promises. But we see this. And so God says, my people have committed two evils. You've abandoned me, the actual fountain of living water, and you've dug cisterns for yourselves, broken ones that can't hold water. Just think about that for a second. And then I want you to Jump over to Jeremiah, he continues with this theme, but in Jeremiah 17, 13, he makes this statement. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the fountain of living water, says the Lord. In a whole nother message, he's bringing it right back here. Like, again, you've abandoned the fountain of living water. You keep trying to find what you need in these other things, which means any other God, guys, any other thing that you depend on is an idol. 
Whether you like that word or not, whether it's too ugly to confront and deal and own with or not, that's just the truth. What you go to, what you depend on, what makes you feel safe, where your provision comes from, is your God. No matter what your mouth says, no matter what songs you sing, your life demonstrates what the truth is. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. You can, try to, you can try to worship me with your mouth and your lips and say the right things, but your heart, where your treasure is, is far from me. And so Jesus comes on the earth, and he's on this mission. What's he on a mission to do? To reveal the Father to the world. To remind them again of who the fountain of living water is. To remind them once again of the father who sees the sparrows and sees the flowers. And look, he even takes care of them. You don't have to worry. You don't have to store up manna. You don't have to build up bigger storage things where moth can eat and rust can destroy. You don't have to do that. You don't have to depend on these things. I am here and I'm revealing to you the Father who loves and provides and who has asked you to partner with him on this mission for this very short time where you can live a life and not just a life but an abundant life because your provision is coming from this fountain of living water where Jesus then promises and says, if you come to me, I will cause within you to arise a fountain of living water. And you will never thirst again. Think about that. But I want to show you this powerful scene where Jesus comes and it's, it's right at the moment where Jesus decides it's time to go public. And it's time for me to make my bold statements. And it's time for them to begin their process of crucifying me. This was a big deal for Jesus. When you read through the life of Jesus, he is constantly telling people, shh, do not tell anyone. When they say, what should I do? He's like, this is what you should do. Go do what the law says to do, but do not tell people about this. If they ask, God is good. That was essentially the theme because he wasn't ready to, come to, to go public because the minute he goes public with this message that he is the source of living water, his death is not far behind. Why? Because he's challenging the idols. He is picking a fight with the gods of this age and he knows that the plan and the result is that the people will do what they've always done. They will reject God as he truly is and they will fully embrace the golden calf. And they will reject the Son of God when he comes and reveals the Father and they will fully instead embrace the rebel and the murderer in Barabbas. So look in John 7, 37. This is a powerful point that needs a little bit of background. In Israel, one of the main feasts that God instilled was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? Or the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tents. Whatever word you want to use to describe small mobile home tent, right? And the whole point of this feast was to be an abundant celebration, like a real feast, like watch what God has done for us. Look at the abundance in front of us. A feast for the purpose 
of glorifying God and what he's done. And it became the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the biggest feasts in Israel's history. It was one of their favorite things. It was a mark of what he did in the wilderness. But it was God saying, look it, I want you to leave your comfortable homes and your fields and your lands that I've given you and the abundance of your crops and everything. I want you to take your harvest and I want you to all gather in Jerusalem, in the city, around the temple or the tabernacle, depending on the time period. And I want you guys to come and bring all of that provision and share it with the whole land. And I want you guys to leave your comfortable homes and live in tents for that week because I want you to remember where you came from and where I brought you from when you were wandering in the wilderness with no home and living in tents and having to trust me for water from rocks and and magic food from the ground every day where enemies were surrounding you and I supernaturally destroyed them right in front of you. I want you to come and remember this time. That's the origin of this feast, this Feast of Tabernacles. And what it became was an annual celebration of the harvest. Okay, that's what it merged into because so consistently it was during the time of the great harvest and every year. And so they would harvest and come. They would, it would ramp up. It was an eight-day festival, guys. Eight days, right? So seven days of sleeping and then eight days of partying, festival, Drinking the fruit of the wine, eating the fruit of the vineyard in the fields and everything. It was a giant celebration. And just like, just like any festival you go to today, right? Soul Fest just happened, right? You always ramp up towards the biggest part of the festival. You start with some good things and then each speaker or band, whatever, increases in popularity and size until the final night is the big one. It was no different here. So for... For seven days, the priests and the rabbis would hold teachings to remind them. They'd read from the the Exodus and the the wilderness times, reminding them like, hey, this is what God did. And different rabbis from different parts would start doing it and would escalate until on the final day, the high priest himself would be the speaker. And when the high priest speaks, the entire nation listens. Okay, it's like when the president speaks. Right? Every news channel switches to that. You can't watch anything else because every channel is watching the president speak live. That's what the high priest was to them. And so he comes at the end, on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where we come and tabernacle together with the Lord. Right, This feast, he comes, and what he would do was speak again and remind people of God's provision and then pray for God to bring the former and the latter rains for the next crop and the harvest. And he would pray and ask God, send your rain, bless our harvest again, send the water that we need for our next crops to be abundant and harvesting well. Like it was a cycle, right? Like, hey, we we thank him for what he's done and then we pray and ask him to do it again. Do you get that? So on the eighth day, everyone's listening. On the first day, people are scattered. They're at different stages. They're all doing what they want. Maybe they're camping out, cooking out. They're, they're not that interested in the small speakers. But as the days got, the crowds would grow bigger and bigger until the last day, everyone was there. So listen, this is where John comes in and he gives us his perspective of what happened here.
Let's see, we'll start in verse 7. Nope. Sorry, we'll start in verse 37. I'll start reading verse 37. I'll summarize the rest. So what happens is the Feast of Tabernacles is beginning and his disciples are like, hey, Jesus, it's time to go. We got to get to the feast. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to that feast. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm not going. It's not time for me to be, you know, exposed. You guys go on ahead. And he sends his disciples ahead. And then the next day he decides to go. And he goes and he goes to the tabernacle and it's like, this is it. He's about to make his moment big. This is where he's about to make his decrees. This is where like his biggest I am statement comes from, right? This chapter seven and eight, where he literally says like, I am multiple times and they decide they're going to crucify him. Before this, he comes here and he's hidden and he's going throughout and he's sharing on a couple of the days. And it says even during those couple days and some of the things he started sharing, people are like, oh, we want to kill him. But other people are like, wait, he's so cool. Listen to what he's saying. And at one point, they're like, if the Messiah does come, will he do any more than this guy does? Like, in other words, he's doing so much. How is he not the Messiah? And they're like, yeah, but the Messiah is going to be unknown. And we know this guy. We know where he came from. We know his family. And they're back and forth in the debating. And they try to kill him multiple times. And, and John writes, but they couldn't do it because it wasn't his time yet. That's what John keeps saying. We don't know what it actually looked like. Like, did Jesus disappear? Did he stiff arm him when they came for him? Like, we have no idea what he did. We just know that they wanted to kill him, but they didn't. So, now listen to what John says with all that background in your mind. In verse 37, John says this, On the last and most important day of the festival... When the high priest is the one who stands up and shares, Jesus stood up and cried out with a loud voice. It's so powerful, guys. It's like it hits every part of you, right? This is what Jesus said. This is, this is why we worship this guy, okay? He says this in a loud voice. You got to picture the scene, though, guys. You, you can't. The high priest is about to come on stage, and Jesus usurps the high priest's spot. Instead, he stands up and cries out with a loud voice, addressing the entire nation that had just gathered for the final part, the most important moment. And Jesus stands up and says, you don't need that high priest, you need this high priest. And I have a message for you. And this is what he cries out in a loud voice. If anyone is thirsty, remember what they're crying for on that final day, for God to bring the water. If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been received, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And when some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, 
Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem, where David once lived? So a division broke out among them, and they wanted to seize him, but no one dared lay hands on him. Then the temple police came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them and said, why have you brought him? The police answered, no man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded and said, are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers believed in him or any of the Pharisees? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously being one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they looked at him and said, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Like, in other words, oh my gosh, Nicodemus, are you on his side now? So each one went to his house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives for the night. Now look what it says. At dawn, the very next day, so remember, the festival is over. Last night was the final night. This is like post-festival gathering and party, right? Like, on the last night of the festival, it gets real rowdy. And in Israel, it got real rowdy, okay? They drank a lot of the fruit of the vine at these festivals. And on the last night, they drank too much of the fruit of the vine often. And just like Scripture says, the folly that's found in that produced a lot of folly. And so Jesus comes down the very next morning sit at the temple complex again. He wants to follow up. He's made himself public. This is it. Follow up with what he said, minister to people, and this is what happens. At dawn, he went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Woman caught in adultery? Yeah. Festivals, guys. Everyone camped out in tents, eating till they're too full, drinking till they're too drinkful. (laughs) And then foolish, stupid things would happen. And these Pharisees knew that this stuff would happen. The entire nation is gathered in tents. Imagine how big of a festival this would be. How many tents are out there? And they catch a woman caught in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus. He said, teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. She's really powerful. She didn't say no one, sir. She didn't say no one, stranger. Man, I don't know. She says, no one, Lord. And he responds, well, neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. And she gets up and goes. But I want to point out something that's often missed because John is the author of this book. 
And John is sharing with us his eyewitness accounts and what he saw happening and how he tied this in to the law and the prophets that they all knew so well, and especially the Feast of Tabernacles. John was trying to paint a picture. And guys, just so you know, the entire gospel of John's theme is John trying to reveal to the readers that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah. So he is the only gospel to do this, to record this tie-in between Jeremiah's prophecy to the people and the New Testament declaration of the Christ. And so you see in Jeremiah 2 when he says, I have these two things against my people. One, they have rejected me as the source of living water. And John is saying, hey, remember that Jeremiah prophecy, guys? Where God through Jeremiah says, you've rejected me as the source of living water. And so let me remind you, Jesus came on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles where we pray for the living water from God. And he said, I am the living water. If you come to me, you will thirst no longer, but instead within you will spring up a source of living water. And that's like a huge tie-in. But John didn't stop there. He continued with this tie-in as well, guys. In Jeremiah 17, the verse 13 one I read. It says, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who abandon the source of living water and make for themselves broken cisterns will be ashamed. They'll be put to shame. Listen, all those who abandon you, the source of living water, will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the fountain of living water. Look at this theme. Abandoned God is the fountain of living water. Again, the fountain of living water. Those who abandon you will be put to shame and their names will be written in the dirt. And John tells us on the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last day, Jesus comes and declares that he is the fountain of living water and that all those who come to him will receive this living water, but all those who reject him and abandon him as the fountain of living water will be written in the dirt. And so John then, very next verse tells us a story about how Jesus is teaching and when the Pharisees come in order to trap him because they don't accept him as the source of living water, he crouches down in the midst of their question and begins to write in the dirt. And they accuse this woman. They're trying to catch him on something that is not the issue. And Jesus and John writing about this is exposing the fact that God is not holding the fact that you fell into some temporary sin against you. What God holds against his people are these two things. That you've rejected and abandoned God as the source of living water. And then instead made for yourselves broken cisterns that can't hold this water. And so John then says, look at these two, I'm going to touch on two prophecies from, from Jeremiah. 
The first one in chapter 7. I am the living water. I am this source. Like God said in Jeremiah 2. And then in the very next thing, those who abandon him, they find Jesus writing in the dirt. So it doesn't say here, but I'll just go out on a limb and say he's writing their names or their titles. And it wouldn't have been lost on them, guys. It would not have been lost on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the experts of the law that didn't know him. This is what idolatry looks like today, guys. Today, it looks like the religion so much of us live in. And it's, it's violent against God. A.W. Tozer said this, True religion confronts earth with heaven, and it brings eternity to bear upon time. Think about that. I'm going to repeat it so you can hear it in the lens of everything I just said. True religion, not being experts of the law, not being masters of your own provision and your own safety and your own comfort, making your own cisterns, but true religion confronts earth, the earthly things we depend on, the earthly way we see things, the earthly way we choose to live. It confronts earth with heaven and it forces eternity, the things of eternal value, the eternal realm, setting our eyes on Christ in the eternal place. It forces eternity to come and bear upon time and the things that we think are so important in this tiny speck of time we have to live. This is what true religion looks like. And instead, we find ourselves content to live in idolatry of all the worst kinds. These kinds, guys, I want you to hear what I'm saying. The, the woman caught in adultery barely got Christ's attention. You know what he said to her? What I said he said. He said, hey, I'm not condemning you over this, but stop. And we in the church, we have everything so backwards. We think those are the things he condemns us for. When we mess up, when we fall short, when we have weak moments, when, when the flesh just gets the better of us, all these stupid moments that he's like, I forgive you if you repent. I get it, but stop doing it. I get it, but there's more for you than that. Somebody lied to you and told you that that would fulfill you. It doesn't. Come to me. Stop doing that and come to me and receive this living water. But then, like the Pharisees, we strain out gnats and swallow camels because we live in idolatry and worship him in that place every Sunday. Well, repenting, you know, in agony over the fact that we messed up in different areas. And God is saying, guys, stop doing that. Yes, right? You should obey all those things. But I have these two things against you that you should be paying attention to. These are the two issues I'm concerned with. That you have abandoned me as your source. You have abandoned me as your source of joy, of fulfillment, of love, of affection, of provision, of satisfaction, of enjoyment, of happiness. You've abandoned me 
for all these other things that you think will give them to you. And then on top of that, you've created human means of safety and security and provision. And you don't even know that they're all broken and cracked and can't even hold water. And that moths will come when you're not looking and just eat it. And rust will come when you're not paying attention and just destroy it. Yet you're depending on those things. I have these two sins that I'm holding up against you, church. But I have come to express this one amazing, saving truth that I am here and available and I am the fountain of living water. And you can now choose to abandon those cisterns that you've been living for and trusting in and you can choose to return to me because I am faithful and just to forgive every sin if you come to me. Guys, this message is so clear throughout Genesis to Revelation. Redemptive history, that course is built on this one truth. That Christ is the fulfillment of this and he is the free and open-handed offer to all those who will repent of their cisterns. All those who will go and dig them up and smash them to pieces and refuse to make more cisterns and instead say, God, here I am. I'm yours. What is the mission? I trust you. What do you have for me? What am I to spend my life on? What am I to spend these gifts and resources on? That's the mission. Guys, my whole message here is summed up in this book called Hind's Feet in High Places. I was going to preach from that. I was even going to read a whole chapter for you. <clears throat> but I want you to get the gist of why it's so important because she walked through this and she understood what it looked like to come to this one truth where she recognized the shepherd, who's the, the main character, it's Jesus in this story. She's a broken person named Much Afraid. And the shepherd comes down to this low valley called humiliation, basically where all the unsaved people are. And he offers to heal her broken crookedness. She can't walk, she has a big limp. She basically is described as having crooked, broken limbs and legs. And, and he promises to give her hind's feet, meaning like the feet of a deer, the hind, the kind that jump on the mountains like with no problems, right? In other words, I'm going to take your broken, crippled self and make you a glorious new creation. And he says, all you have to do is follow me out of this valley and up the mountain. We have to get all the way to the top of this giant mountain. And so she follows him. And along the way, she's so excited to follow him because he's promised her every good thing she could ever have wished she had, like new legs and wealth and, and, and family and friends, like every good earthly thing you can imagine. The shepherd's saying, I'm going to give you everything your heart's desiring, all of it, follow me. And she does. And she runs into all sorts of hardships and realizes like, hey, God is good and faithful along the way. She calls on the shepherd and he answers her every time and just appears out of nowhere. And she like embraces him. She's like, thank you, thank you for coming. I was so bad. And it's always times when she messed up, where she stopped believing, she lost faith, she sinned, she believed doubt, fear, uh, pride, all these different family members that have these names. And she, her partners that the shepherd gives her to lead her are called sorrow and suffering. Those are her two guides through this journey. 
and she's walking with this and she's gone a whole way. She's gathered so many promises from the shepherd along the way and the, the, the promises are represented as little gemstones that she finds in the ground of the place where she suffered and she puts it in a sack and she's carrying all these promises in a sack with her. And she gets all the way to almost the top of the mountain. They're almost at the snow line. They can look up and they can see the peak where they're at. But she's following the path the shepherd put her on and the path comes right to this steep edge that drops all the way down back to the valley of humiliation and then walks across that valley and then back up another very steep path and gets back up around halfway the mountain there. In other words, like starting over. And she stops and she's like, I mean, she's barely hanging on to make it to the mountain. And she gets here and her only hope is that they're that close. She can't wait. And she gets, she's the path, takes her all the way down. And the author describes it like that she, she, she went into a blackness. She stared into the abyss as it were. And she said it felt as if she was staring into the actual depth of hell. And at this moment, she sincerely entertained no longer following the shepherd. She said, I can't, I can't do it. It's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And she started to think about what her life would look like if she got to set her own terms, follow her own path, live the way she wanted to, and not have to follow this oppressive, abusive shepherd that just keeps her stuck with sorrow and suffering and going down into this place. And in the midst of staring into this blackness, she felt what it would be like to no longer be with the shepherd for an instant. And the feeling she felt of utter despair and, and hopelessness and lostness caused her to, to spontaneously shriek out and cry out for the shepherd. To save her from that bleak feeling of hopelessness that she felt when she began to entertain no longer following the shepherd. And the shepherd immediately comes and she embraces him and she weeps and she's like, don't ever leave me, don't ever leave me, don't let me go, don't let me make a decision like that ever. And she's like, I will, I will go even if none of the promises you made to me come true, even if nothing you ever said is true, if you've lied to me, if you've deceived me the whole way, I don't care. Just don't let me ever leave you. Don't let me ever be without you. And the shepherd is like moved with uh, compassion and affection, embraces her and leads her along the way. And the rest of the book is also awesome in that same way. But this part has always stood out to me. It resonated with me. And it made a deep impact on me the first time I read it many, many moons ago. Because it resonates this truth that it took that type of experience for her to recognize that the shepherd was the source of all the things she had ever hoped for. He was the manifestation and the expression and the reality of all the things she ever thought would bring her joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. He was it. Even if he never fixed her legs, even if he never gave her family, even if he never gave her security, as long as she always had him, she would be content. 
It took that for her to recognize him as the source of living water. And this is the call, guys. This was the whole point of every message I've preached for the last month, touching on all the different things I've touched on, is this. It comes down to recognizing where the heart issue is before God, what he's interested in. Are you going to remain content with your broken cisterns and your temporary stockpiles, or are you willing to abandon those sources of security and turn to the living God and recognize and come to him for your water, for your living water, for the water that he prophetically and demonstrably cried out and said, I am he, I am this. It's in the gospels, it's in the Bible. There's a lot of awesome, cool stuff in the Bible like that. All of it points to this one point. Every point of it, every fact of it points to this. Christ, you're everything. Everything else that you have for enjoyment needs to be recognized as coming from him. And if it didn't come from him, it's an imposter. And it needs to be destroyed because it's vying for your attention instead of glorifying God in the midst of it. This is what communion is meant to be. Communion is meant to be a time where you remember what you're even gathered together for. Where you remember where this feast of bounty that you're about to eat came from and what it represents. Thank you, God, for this provision and you as the source of all good things. God, that we eat like kings and we don't deserve it, but we are so grateful for you and we will forever allow it to represent in our hearts every time we sit down to eat your abundant provision and your source because you care for us. Let's just stand up now, guys, because I think the recognition of this demands one of two responses. Repentance, if you feel like you're in that place, or two, worship at the recognition of how awesome he is and has been. We've heard this truth. We've heard this message. We've listened to Jeremiah and John confirm it. And this is the time where you get right and you worship. Just begin to do it right now. Let it come from your heart, right? The worship team will will follow. But let the Holy Spirit begin to lead and just stir this thing in your heart and do business with God right now. Just begin to cry out and say, God, I'm here in front of you. God, forgive me again for allowing myself to build broken cisterns, for allowing myself to try to put my security and safety in the manna that you promised to provide every day, for allowing my heart to be gripped by the fear of not being provided for, by allowing my heart to be distracted away from you as my source for everything for allowing me to find fulfillment in successful things instead of finding it in you and the success of your mission. Forgive me for that, God, and open up my eyes and my heart and my mind to see you, to see you and to embrace you as you are. To know that because of your great love for me and your people, You have come and made this offer free of charge to come and drink abundantly from the source of refreshing, from the source 
of life itself from the source of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness from the source of living water himself thank you God you are good you are worthy to be worshipped with our lives you are worthy to be worshipped with our decisions you are worthy to be worshipped with our mouth with our words with our songs with our deeds with our affections with our feelings with our striving with our struggling you are worthy to be worshipped with our sacrifices with our efforts you are worthy to be worshipped with our relationships with our marriages with our children with our family you are just simply worthy of it all God shatter our human cisterns shatter them we give you permission God to come in like a flood and destroy them uproot them torch them God and every other false thing that it contains in them that we've depended on that we've looked to for provision for safety destroy them God we give you permission now strengthen our hearts to embrace this in order to step into a greater life of greater fulfillment and freedom that our eyes will be open to see you in a whole new light Yeah, let's do it, guys. Let's do it. Let's do business with God here. Don't leave until you've touched him. Don't leave until you've reached out and grabbed a hold of him and told him that you want this, that you're willing to die for this, that you're willing to be crucified for this, you're willing to climb up onto the cross with him for this.